Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Jesus Curious. This is going to be a really fun and informative journey into the life of Jesus, who he was, who he is, and from a really different perspective. So who is this podcast for? This is for people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, people who don't, Christians, Jews, Catholics, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, agnostics, atheists. If you are curious about Jesus, who I personally usually call Yeshua, and you may call Jesus, it really doesn't matter, and want to know who he is from a historical, cultural, unedited lens, but also from like a non-skeptical Judeo-Christian place of belief, you are in the right place. You don't have to be a scholar, but if you are, I believe that you will find this fascinating as well. So why does this podcast exist? It's here because I see every day that people are really hurting. And if I'm being completely honest, I'm hurting as well. You know, well-intentioned leaders who are plainly just sinners. And a lot of people that had a lot of faith put into them that shouldn't have been. And people are hurt from cultic manipulation. But what I see as the biggest problem is that people are largely biblically illiterate. Uh, many Bible studies don't even crack open the Bible these days. And a lot of people, I think, feel very intimidated or inadequate to read the Bible on their own. And this whole kind of idea of, oh, you just need the Bible, sola scriptura, just read the Bible and you'll understand it. Okay, but I think it doesn't really answer everybody's questions. Not that the Bible is itself incapable of teaching you everything you need to know for salvation. It certainly is. But... Who exactly were the Romans and why did they care so much about the Jews and why did the Jews care so much about them? That requires a historical background. What were these feasts that people were celebrating? What were they about? Why did the lepers cause so much issues? Who were the Pharisees and why were they arguing all the time? Were they a bad people or a good people? These are kinds of the questions that I think the church has done probably a bad job of talking about over the years in a really uh, unscholarly way, in a way that has led people to uh, really not investigate who these people were and the framework in which they lived. and. To be honest, the writers assumed everybody kind of knew because the Roman Empire was an empire. Who did not know about the Roman Empire and what they were about? Well, turns out 2000 years later, we're not quite so sure unless we're obsessed with the Roman Empire like I am. So for some communities, even learning about Jesus 
from a traditional source is taboo. And so this podcast is for them too. Uh, I know from personal experience that in many religious Jewish communities, behind closed doors, Jesus is the most common topic of conversation. But they would never, they would never admit it. It is the forbidden fruit. So I want to feed people's curiosity without manipulation or shame or stigma. I'm not asking you to join any organization. I don't have anything for you to donate to. Let's ask the hard questions and together let's just literally read the Bible verse by verse and see what it says. But along with this just magnanimous plethora of crazy information that we have access to regarding archaeology and history. It's really almost an embarrassment of riches of knowledge that we have where we can put all these pieces together and better understand not only who Jesus was, who the disciples were, who, you know, uh, Jesus's mother was, Nicodemus, all of these characters, quote unquote, were as real people and what exactly they were talking about. Now, a little bit about me. My name is Mary Nadler. I have degrees in history and Bible and ancient Hebrew from a prominent Christian university here in the United States. Um, I am a Jewish believer in Yeshua or Jesus, and I do have family connections within the messianic movement in the united states and i would say from the more traditional messianic movement not some of these offshoots and i am someone who can't get enough of archaeology documentaries Uh, i want to know everything about everything and how it connects so like i if i could do it all over i would be a uh a paleontologist or i would be an archaeologist or an Egyptologist, I would definitely have some kind of degree in hieroglyphics. So here is what you can expect from this podcast. So from a general perspective, um, I'm going to be talking about first century Jewish teaching and culture. What would that have looked like to be a first century Jewish person growing up in Judea? First century Roman culture, what was their motivations? What were they so interested in Judea? Like, why were they there? What was their purpose? And then piecing together what we know from Jewish practice and archeology span today, uh, the first episode, this one here, it's gonna be a very high level view of the Jewish story. So both historically speaking and this grand mythos, you know, this, this, uh, basically this God story up to about 400 BC. The second episode is super important. So if you feel like you got this Old Testament story down, fine, please, please tune in for the second episode because I feel like this is such an under, uh, under, misunderstood part of the whole story. And that is an overview from 400 BC to the first century. And that is when the Greeks come in. So Alexander the Great, Greek culture, Macedonian, Egyptian culture, 
and Roman culture and all of this having an effect on Judea and Jewish culture and the Maccabean revolt, which has an incredibly, incredibly important effect on the psyche of the people living in Judea in the first century at the time when Jesus of Nazareth is born. So the following episodes, we're going to be starting in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be reading a chapter per episode. And this is so exciting because each week I'm going to be having on a different guest to talk through each chapter and some are going to be these really amazing bible teachers some will be rabbis some will be pastors and some are just going to be really like normal people but with super unique perspectives uh that can really lend just such uh just such texture to our understanding of the bible and it's going to be very fun very unique discussions on each chapter of matthew so let's get into it first before we start talking about the old testament let's talk a little bit about the differences between the hebrew scriptures and the christian old testament so in the christian old testament the books are outlined linearly more or less so it starts with the first five books of moses which is genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy that's exactly how the the hebrew scriptures start too and we call that the torah in the hebrew scriptures so in the christian scriptures we call that the law and the old testament and the christian scriptures end with malachi the Catholic Bible also includes something called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is not considered scripture by the Hebrew Bible standards. So they're more like historical books. Uh, that includes Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Estras, Prayer of Manassas, Enoch, Jubilees, Jasher, Psalm 151, and all of the apocryphal additions to Daniel and Esther, including the prayer of Azariah, Susanna, and Bel and the dragon, which sounds amazing. But probably the reason why there a lot of those books are not in there is that they could not be um, they could not be authenticated as like an original transcript or whatnot, but for whatever reason, the Jewish scholars did not consider them inspired by God, and thus they are not in the quote-unquote Protestant scriptures or considered part of the Protestant canon, but they have been included in the Catholic canon. So in the Old Testament for the Christian scriptures, they have four sections, the law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, and that's the beginning. Then there's history, writings, and prophets. In the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Tanakh, which is like all of the Hebrew scriptures, there are three sections, which is the Torah. It starts out with the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then there's the prophets and the writings. 
Now, the whole, basically everything that you should know revolves around Torah, the first five books. And basically everything else is considered almost a commentary on the first five books. Uh, life revolves around the Torah because that's the law. That's how you are supposed to live. So the Jewish calendar, you read the entire Torah in one year, every year. You actually roll back the scroll each year to the beginning on Simchat Torah and um, typically match a reading of Torah with a reading of Haftorah or the prophets. And then the writings tend to be reserved for prayers, uplifting during special times. Um, and then the books are in a different order than in the Christian scriptures. So the last book of the Tanakh or Hebrew scriptures is actually Second Chronicles, uh, which uh, becomes kind of important later when we start the first chapter of Matthew. Some of the verses are listed a little differently than the Christian numbering. But also, some traditional differences would be the numbering of the Ten Commandments. So in the Christian scriptures, the Ten Commandments list the first commandment as, you shall have no other gods before me, and the second commandment as, you shall make no graven images. Whereas in the Hebrew scriptures, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the second commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, combined with, you shall make no graven images. So th there's some binary differences like that. All right, so let's talk about what's actually like in these scriptures. And let's start with the first letter of the first word. So the first word is in the book of Genesis, and it's called Breshit. Uh, in Hebrew, and that's the first word, meaning in the beginning. So, Breshit starts with the letter Beit. Now, Beit is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it looks like this. If you're watching, um, if you're not watching, I'll describe it. So, basically, it has a line on the bottom, and then it has one line on one side that looks kind of like a wall, and then it has, it curves, and it has what looks like a roof on top. So it basically looks kind of like a house with one wall missing. And what's important about this is, first of all, the Aleph Beit, or the Jewish alphabet, Hebrew alphabet, uh, the letters also stand in for numbers. So this would be the number two in the Hebrew alphabet. So, it would make sense that instead of the Hebrew scripture starting with the letter Beit, it would start with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the alphabet. Uh, but it starts with the letter Beit, which is two. And it also means, the, the word Beit means house. So the idea is, and this is just an idea, and you can take it or leave it, but the idea is that God sheltered his word uh, for us, that he wanted to give us understanding in this kind of shelter. And everything else, everything else he has saved for himself. So there's this idea 
in some parts of Judaism that the olive is there. And if you're wa for those watching, they can see that there is an olive which looks kind of like a funky uh, X and it's in parentheses. So the olive does exist and it, it exists before the bait, um, but it is hidden and it is to be revealed in the world to come and it exists before the beginning. And so for those who are familiar with the book of John, you might find that really quite interesting, but um, there is these hidden things of God that we are yet to know and they will be revealed in the world to come and that is for him and not for us and he has sheltered the things that he would like for us to know in this kind of house of bait and the word uh, the letter bait here is for the preposition in and um, the rest of the word is reshit which the root of that word is rosh which means like head um, so in or like first or primary or you know like the top so in the the primariness in the beginning and um, in the first things and that is how God's or that is how Moses starts uh, Genesis which is very interesting and I think it's really helpful to understand scripture that God reveals as much as he wants to reveal. Um, so we will have questions and um, we will, we can conjecture and we can imagine things like, hey, maybe it was this way or it was that way. But the truth is, is that it will be conjecture until all is revealed in the world to come. And I really like that. I think that's really fun. Um, okay. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth is formless and void in the spirit of, in the spirit. Uh, and darkness hovered over the uh, the deep and God said let there be light and there was light and he saw the light was good and there's evening and there's morning day one day that was day one so on the second day it says then God said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse from water. <laughs> so your, most translations will say heaven. He called the expanse heaven. But the word for water is mayim, and so it will say um, he separated the, the Mayim from the Mayim, and he called the expanse Shemayim, or from Mayim. So he called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. So he, so God didn't create anything. Day two, he just separated the waters from the waters, and this is called, in Judaism, the most painful day of creation because it is the first step in God dividing his oneness in his creativity. He separated one thing from itself. And it is the only day of creation God does not call good. So at this point, there is a veil between God and his creation. And at this moment, there is an epic struggle between God and creation to be restored. 
he desires oneness most of all in his creativity. And so we go through all of these days of creation and on the fourth day he creates the sun and the stars and the celestial uh, bodies and then there's um, you know land and there's animals and then finally there's this uh, um, we get to human beings which is like the um, the big finale of his creation and he creates man in his own image which is basically like he implants a part of himself he breathes in his own spirit into uh not his own spirit but he his own uh, image into man so that there is this deep longing forever in man to seek oneness with god and it is innate it is something that um, man is born with that he will always seek to be one with his creator so and God names the man Adam which means man and then Adam is supposed to go and name all the animals and he looks among all the animals for a mate and he can't find anyone suitable so God puts Adam to sleep and he creates a woman from Adam's rib and he she is his Azer Kenegdo which means like an, a helper opposite him like a face-to-face -face helper and uh, so God says you can eat of every tree in this garden um, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, if you eat of that you will surely die so they're just wandering in the garden and a, ser a serpent deceives Eve by saying God said not to eat of the fruit because you'll become like him. Um, and so she eats of it and she tempts Adam who was with her when she was deceived. And then when God shows up, Adam says, well, the woman uh, told me to eat this. So I did, of course. So God uh, curse sends a bunch of curses, right? So he curses uh, the serpent to slither on his belly, which is like interesting because what did a serpent look like before? But he is cursed to slither on his belly. And this is when we get the first messianic prophecy, which is in Genesis 3.15. And it says, and I will make enemies of you and the woman and your offspring and her descendant and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel so that's it cryptic as it may sound and um so god curses the woman to have pain in childbirth and the man to toil in the field there's some there's some other curses there um and they are ultimately banished from the garden and that means separation from God in a physical sense. So let's skip a, a bit. By the way, I'm going to be skipping through a lot. I'm going to leave out a lot here. Um, probably some important things that you are going to be upset about. I'm sorry, but this is going to be the Old Testament in an hour. Um, but hopefully this podcast will go on long enough that we'll revisit Genesis because it's such a great book. In any case, next we'll go on to Noah. So Noah lived in a wicked generation 
so wicked that God decides to destroy humanity altogether and start over again. Noah is the only man found righteous in his generation, which means that Noah may not be righteous in this generation. Maybe he would be superiorly righteous in this generation, but maybe he wouldn't be righteous at all. Uh, probably not righteous in Jesus' generation, certainly not righteous in Abraham's generation, but he was righteous in this one. And uh, God commands Noah to build an ark. So he does. And he saves his wife and three sons and their wives. So now it, the text doesn't say that Noah's wife and his three sons and their wives are righteous. It just says Noah was righteous. Um, so he also is commanded to save two of each kind of unclean animal, male and female, and seven pairs of each kind of clean animal. Um, we don't know what clean animal means because before this time there was no Torah to tell us what clean and unclean meant but that's what the text says. So God de destroys the earth by flood and he uses a rainbow as a sign of promise that he will never destroy the earth again by flood, which I always find really interesting because whenever I see a rainbow, I think, oh gosh, you know, God's mad again. He's reminding himself not to destroy the earth by flood, <laughs> but other, you know, other people think it's gorgeous. In any case, it's not my favorite thing to see. <laughs> so moving along, there's a lot of things that happen in between. And next we go to Ur, where we find Abraham. And Abraham's dad is supposedly this seller of idols. He's an idol maker. But Abraham finds himself a monotheist. And he is the first supposedly monotheist in the world. And he uh, puts his faith in God and God calls him his friend. And he's known to be faithful to the one true God as opposed to an idol worshiper. And God chooses to begin his narrative of world redemption and this kind of this, okay, God's going to reach down and start his narrative of oneness again, of trying to to seek back into the world to uh, this pulley system of like, I'm going to reach back and we're going to pull back together so that I am again one with my creation. So Abraham's called by God from Ur to a land unknown and promises to make him into a great nation. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, says, says his descendants will be as plentiful as the dust of the earth. Uh, through the descendants of Abraham, all the world will be blessed. And this oneness with God and redemption for mankind will be achieved. Uh, those who bless this nation will be blessed and those who curse this nation will be cursed. So basically this nation coming from Abraham, God is going to use to bless all of mankind. If they so choose to align themselves with this family that God is creating from Abraham. Now, Abraham's wife is barren. She is old and Abraham is old too. Abraham's about 75 years old. And I think I'm unsure. I think Sarah's about 50 uh, because she's menopause, right? So she's barren. Sarah offers up her servant, Hagar, who gives birth to Ishmael. She offers up her servant, Hagar, who to you know, have a baby with Abraham because obviously she's too old to have a baby. 
So Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And God says, oh no, that was not what I had intended. He's not the son of promise. Don't worry though, I have a plan for Ishmael, but this is not the plan that I had intended. So 25 years after the original promise, God does open Sarah's womb at the ripe old age of about 75. And Abraham, 100 years old, becomes the father of Isaac. And Isaac is the child of the covenant. Um, now Isaac, who we believe at the time was either a teenager or up to maybe 40 years old, is the only son of Abraham, only son of promise of Abraham. And God says to Abraham, uh, I want you to take some wood and you are going to uh, go up to this mountain and you're going to make a sacrifice and you're going to take your son. And so he says, okay. So they go to this high point and he prepares an altar and God says, your son is who you are sacrificing to me. Your only son. Uh, right. So, okay. Abraham was like, sure. So Abraham takes his adult son and uh, ties him up on to the wood. And this is called the binding of Isaac or the Akeda in Jewish uh, life. Uh, it's uh, read around Yom Kippur time, Rosh Hashanah time. And um, so it's this very, very dramatic scene where uh, Abraham binds his son, his only son, Isaac, and he says, okay, you like, are, you told me to sacrifice him. I've got this dagger. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac because you told me to, God. And he has a dagger in his hand. He has his arm up and uh, he stops him. God stops him from sacrificing his son. He says, wait, hold on. Uh, don't sacrifice your son. I have provided for myself a sacrifice. There's a ram in the thicket. Sacrifice that. But you showed so much faith in me and my plan. And um, so good on you. And that was like a really cool thing that Abraham did apparently. <laughs> but I couldn't imagine doing that with my own son or uh, my either one of them but in any case um it's a very dramatic scene but it showed how much faith that abraham really did have and the plan that god had for him and it's definitely used in um, both christian and jewish faith traditions as an example of how much faith we should have in god that we're willing to sacrifice our very own children um to uh if he would if he should ask us um but knowing that he would never truly ask us to do that because that's actually like a pagan thing so <clears throat> isaac marries this woman named rebecca who was so enamored with isaac because apparently he was very handsome that when she saw him she fell off her camel 
That is 100% true. If you don't believe me, you should learn Hebrew and read it in the Hebrew. But so Rebecca, she gets pregnant with twins and they are named Esau and Jacob and they wrestle together in her womb. And Esau comes out first, but Jacob is holding on to Esau's heel and he is known as the usurper. So Esau is like this very manly, manly guy. He's also very hairy. He grows hair like you wouldn't believe. And he goes hunting and he goes fishing and he probably has like this big Jeep that he goes mudding in. And um, he wears a trucker hat and he has a nice beard. Jacob likes to play on his, uh, you know, like Xbox and he has very soft hands and um, he is not hairy at all. But Esau favored by Isaac. Isaac thinks that Esau is really cool, obviously. Jacob, much more of a mama's boy. But he, you know what, they go shopping together. So Rebecca, she really loves Jacob and she's like, hey, I know that you're supposed to get the blessing from your dad, but he wants to give it to Esau. But guess what? He's going blind. So what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put this sheep's like this like animal skin on you and we're going to pretend you're Esau and he's going to give while he's on his deathbed, he's going to give you Esau's blessing, which he did because it was that easy to trick people back then. And so Jacob receives a blessing and he becomes the child of promise and which was foretold. So Jacob is the person, the, the chosen one from Jacob and Esau. Esau or Jacob ends up wrestling with this angel. He gets a new name called Israel. Israel means wrestles with God because he wrestled with the angel, which is supposed to be God. And, um, he has this mad crush on this girl named Rachel. So he works for seven years to marry Rachel and, um, Rachel's dad, Laban, tricks him and he ends up marrying Rachel's sister, Leah, instead, um, because they, you know, they put a veil on him. He couldn't tell. And so he has to work seven, four years to marry Rachel. So he's married to Rachel and Leah that he worked a total of 14 years to marry. And, um, they are in a crazy rivalry together to have the most boys. So they not only have their own sons, but they offer up their maids to their husband uh, as partners to have sons in their name. And all of those sons combined were 12 sons. So there were 12 sons of Jacob. And so Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. And Joseph was the oldest son of Rachel. And so obviously Rachel was like his favorite wife. Joseph was the oldest son of his favorite wife. So there you go. But Joseph was not the oldest son. So all the other brothers were not cool with how much favoritism Joseph was getting. And Joseph was having all these dreams that all of his older brothers, well, all of his brothers were going to one day bow down to him. They were 
hashtag not cool with that. And so they devised this scheme, but not until after Joseph gave, or Jacob gave Joseph this amazing Technicolor dream coat that was fabulous. And that was the last straw. So they were like, okay, let's put a sack over him and let's sell him to some like merchants that are passing through. So they sell him into slavery and he's taken into Egypt. So once in Egypt, he starts working as a slave in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is this accountant in Egypt and he's doing great. Potiphar loves him and who also loves him is Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife is very seductive. She's thinks she's a cougar and she tries to seduce Joseph. Joseph is like, no ma'am, I'm not gonna do this. And um, so she, she accuses Joseph of raping her. And so Joseph is accused of raping the Potiphar's wife, who is the mistress of the house. He gets thrown into prison for like a really long time, years. And um, it's totally unfair. And while he's there, this, these two other guys, a butler and a baker, get thrown into prison as well. And the butler and the baker, they each have a dream and that's bothering them. And so Joseph's like, okay, well, tell me your dream and maybe I can interpret it for you. So he interprets each one of their dreams correctly. So, and what it was, was the butler was restored to his position as butler and the baker was executed. And he's like, okay, so like when you're restored to your position, Mr. Butler, just remember me. So the butler is with Pharaoh and he is, Pharaoh's having this dream. He has two dreams and they're very disturbing. And the butler's like, oh wait, hey, I remember this guy back in prison. He used to interpret dreams. So you should talk to him. So they bring uh, Joseph to Pharaoh and Pharaoh interprets Joseph's dream and ends up saving Egypt from famine. Amazing. Joseph is exalted to grand vizier over Egypt. He's like second in line only to Pharaoh huge win so big big deal joseph gets dressed as an egyptian like he's got this like big old house he um has an egyptian wife he gets, has two kids ephraim and manasseh and and egypt's doing great they have so much money they have so much wealth they have so much food and all the rest of the world is in famine including Canaan, where his brothers and his dad and his mom and everybody else lives. So they come to Egypt begging for food. And so they go see Joseph and they do not recognize him at all because he looks like an Egyptian. And so they brothers prostrate themselves before Joseph, just like Joseph saw in his dream. And um, long story short, they all reconciled and wept and all the 12 brothers and their families moved to Egypt, 70 in all. And it's a very happy time. Fast forward 400 years later, 
The Hebrews, as they became known, had grown so huge in number, they became enslaved because the Egyptians feared them. So they're now slaves in Egypt, and the Hebrews grew so great in number um, that Pharaoh ordered all the male Hebrew babies to be murdered for population control. And God heard the cries of his people and decided to intervene. Now, Moses was born during this time, and his mom put him in a basket and sent him down the Nile. And he was sent under the watchful eye of his sister Miriam. Moses, to his great fortune, was found by the daughter of Pharaoh and adopted as her own child. And Miriam said, hey, that's my baby brother. And uh, Moses' mother weaned him, and it was this kind of really great secret thing that the daughter of Pharaoh uh, adopted Moses and all was well. Now, whether Moses realized that he was Hebrew or it was unknown to him, at some point he realizes it and he witnesses cruelty of a Hebrew slave by an Egyptian and he loses it and he kills that Egyptian. And he runs away to Midian. And Midian, he meets Jethro. Because, you know, he's like on the run. Because he, he straight up killed an Egyptian. And um, so he runs away to Midian. He meets this guy Jethro. Jethro has a daughter named Zipporah, who is played by Michelle Pfeiffer in, um, in Prince of Egypt. Um, and uh, so he like meets Zipporah, they get married, they have some kids, like he's just, you know, living his life. He has some sheep, maybe he's like tending to some field, whatever he's doing. He's just living a quiet life, forgets about Egypt, forgets about his Hebrew heritage, whatever. And then, you know, a little lamb gets, you know, runs away and he, goes into this ravine or wherever he is and he sees this bush that is on fire and it is not consumed by the fire and he's like well this is weird and so he's looking at it and he he can't figure it out and the bush starts to speak to him and he's like this is I'm losing my mind I don't I don't know what to do. And so he has this encounter with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, I am the God of your ancestors. And I am telling you that my, uh, that you are the guy. And he gives him his name. He says, I am that I am. And he says, Moses, you are supposed to go back to Egypt. I've heard the cries of my people and you are supposed to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, sure, yeah, um, thing is, I stutter. And so he says, cool, cool, cool. Your, your brother Aaron, he's not, he's not a stutterer. You can have your uh, brother Aaron speak for you. And he's like, all right, cool. So he brings his brother Aaron, which he finds somehow, and um, they go to, to Pharaoh and they say, uh, hey man, let my people go. By the way, Pharaoh, is probably Tutmosis II, according to new research. Um, a lot of people thought it was Ramses II because uh, Egyptology is not um, 
is like very stubborn. It's very unimaginative because <laughs> a lot of Egyptology is based on old science that um, a lot of other stuff is built on and it's hard for people to be imaginative about like a new narrative there. But the truth is, is that new studies have indicated it's probably this guy named Tutmosis II. So um, anyway, so it's kind of funny. His name is Tutmosis. But Moses's name in, in Hebrew is not Moses, it's Moshe. So, so when Pharaoh refuses, God sends plagues. And the plagues all are uh, symbolic of the things that Egyptians worship. Uh, so the first one is the Nile turns to blood and then the land is plagued by frogs. There is lice, uh, wild animals, pestilence, boils, fiery hail, locusts, darkness. And the 10th one, the worst one, death of the firstborn. So all of these, uh, these plagues would affect the Egyptians, but they wouldn't affect the Hebrew slaves. And so it was clearly a dividing line between, you know, the people that God was coming to save versus the people of Egypt. Except this last one, the death of the firstborn. So the death of the firstborn, in order to escape it, was if you slaughtered a lamb, and then took the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorpost, like the, the top of the lentil of the house, like the, the top doorpost of the house and on the sides of the, of the doorpost of the house. And then you ate, your family ate the entire lamb that night. Then God would pass over your house uh, and nobody in your household would die. But if you didn't do that, if you didn't practice that act of faith, then the oldest son in your household would die. And so this, that's why it's called Passover. Uh, so lots of people who may have been Hebrews and did not believe it, their sons did die. But And then people who were Egyptian and did believe it, their sons didn't die. Now, Pharaoh's firstborn son did die. Um, so he was really upset and he was like, go, go, let just go. You have, just go, you, let, you know, you can go. And so the Hebrews are like, great. And um, they take the spoils of Egypt and they had to leave so fast their bread could not rise. And they left with a mixed multitude, not just Hebrews, but with Egyptians as well. And in the midst of their leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind and he decides to go after them. And as uh, they're leaving, there's like a million, two million of them, and they come to the Sea of Reeds. And so they have the Sea of Reeds in front of them and they have Pharaoh's army behind them with chariots and they're trapped. And so God tells Moses to hit the rock in front of them with a staff and then the sea parts allowing the Hebrews to pass on dry ground, millions of them. And as the last man passes through, the Egyptians give chase and they're in the Sea of Reeds and the waters come back together, drowning the Egyptians in the sea. And, and uh, 
you know, the Hebrews rejoice and they sing Mikamocha Baalim uh, Hashem and, you know, horse and rider drown into the sea. And it is a very epic moment. Something like Hollywood should make a movie out of Charlton Heston. It's so big. And uh, so this amazing salvation from the Lord comes and they are saved. Just so miraculous, like nothing you've ever seen before. So they walk for a bit. They come to Mount Sinai and uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. And just as soon, or it seems as just as soon as he goes up to meet with God, the Hebrews quickly forget the miracles they just lived through and create an idol of the golden calf, <laughs> probably from the spoils of Egypt. And uh, so God's like, uh, Moses, you better see what these people are doing down there. And so Moses comes down with two tablets of the Ten Commandments and he sees the golden calf and he just breaks them and he says, what are you doing? And he gets so angry, he grinds down the golden calf and he makes them drink it. And uh, some people who allow, like 3,000 3, people die, like he died, were forced to like be slaughtered because they allowed this. And um, he goes back up, Moses goes back up and he gets more, two new tablets because he broke the first two. And um, it, was, it was a mess. It was very upsetting. So it goes to show, you know, how quickly uh, we look to, uh, if we don't have, it, we, we can go through something so miraculous and so quickly forget if we, if we feel like we just don't have that miracle right in front of us all the time. There are these spies that go into the land of Canaan to take it. And it was Joshua and Caleb and 12 spies. And they're supposed to go in there and see how awesome it is. And they come back and Joshua and Caleb say, it's great. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be amazing. And uh, the 12 spies say, no, it's horrible. There are giants who are surely going to die. And... Uh, it was for that um, fear that they showed, even after they saw this huge miracle that God did, that the um, that generation was not allowed to go into the land of Canaan. They had to wander in the desert for 40 years until that entire generation that passed through uh, the Sea of Reeds had died out. And... Um, uh, that was on the 9th of Av, supposedly. So the bad report was on the 9th of Av, which was the same day that the first temple was destroyed and the second temple was destroyed and a whole other series of maladies for the Jews happened. And um, it's actually a day of fasting on the Jewish calendar. So it was not a good, not a good thing. So never underestimate God. That, that's the moral of that story. So while they're wandering in the wilderness, uh, they are fed by manna and uh, God provides them everything that they need and they're like very very uh, strange uh, miracles that happen all the time like very strange miracles it's quite a read um, and the rest of the Torah is dictated 
for a total of 613 laws. Now, some of these laws are for priests, some of these laws are for Levites, some are for men, some are for women, some are for children. Uh, not one person can keep all 613 laws because not all 613 laws are for one person. And no one is expected to keep the Torah perfectly because some of the laws start with, when you break such and such commandment, this is what you should do. So the point is, in the Torah, no one person found salvation through keeping all the laws. Rather, keeping the laws was a demonstration of faith in God, and salvation was seen as more of a, a corporate act of God. All right, so finally, Moses dies. Hebrews take the land of Israel. They conquer city by city um, with Joshua at the, at the helm. Uh, these aren't particularly violent sieges with some exceptions. Uh, God fights these battles and sometimes cities here, they are coming and just, they just surrender. They just, here you go. And before the Hebrews even show up. And then after that, Israel is governed by judges and God does not want Israel to be governed by Kings, but by his anointed judges or militaristic prophets. Um, but God says they will eventually want a King be seen as more legitimate among the nations. So eventually they do. And so God gives him a king named Saul and Saul does okay. But eventually he loses his mind as they do. And when he realizes that David has found favor with God, he does. So David is his son's BFF. He's also Saul's son-in-law. And, uh, there's some other stuff that happens, like Saul's supposed to blot out the name of Amalek, meaning like all of Amalek's descendants, like women, children, all of that stuff. And he doesn't really do it. And then the descendants of Amalek tr proved to be like arch enemies of the Jews through history, most notably Haman from the Esther narrative. Um, and also Saul seeks David's life and what seems to be like forever and uh, David refuses to kill him because he won't kill God's anointed it's a thing but anyway it's it's a drama okay so Saul has like this very I don't know it's like almost like a King King George-esque situation going on now regarding King David he's a shepherd he kills Goliath with a slingshot he becomes a local legend. He's a war hero in Saul's army. He leads a pack of mighty men. Like they'll say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And he's anointed by God through Samuel to be the next king. And he's a man after God's own heart. And he wrote many of the Psalms. And by the words in them, we can tell like he had this like truly intimate prayer relationship with God. And he becomes king and he establishes Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. And he is just the most impulsive guy ever. Because he does this thing where He's in his palace and he sees this obviously married woman bathing on her rooftop. Why does he know he, she's married? Because 
she's bathing on her rooftop like she's doing her ceremonial like I just had my period kind of thing and he summons her he commits adultery with her but because of the power difference I mean he rapes her uh, she becomes pregnant so oh no she, he's in a quandary now uh, so he's like no problem I'll call back her husband who's a war hero um, and I will have him go home so that he'll think the baby's his except the war hero refuses to go back home not while his men are out in the battlefield and so he's like man you're killing me so he says okay Uriah um, you go back out in the battlefield and he puts him on the front line so he will surely die problem solved right except there's a prophet uh, yeah the prophet knew it all and he comes up to David and he says um David you're the murderer by the way you murdered this guy and you committed adultery with his wife and yada 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 so David's instantly convicted he writes Psalm 51 which is just gut-wrenching and the baby that uh, Batsheva became pregnant with dies which is really insanely excruciating not just for David but hello for Batsheva but he does love Batsheva a lot and he marries her and she gives birth to Solomon who becomes the next king uh, King Solomon builds the holy temple he asks for wisdom from God which God gives him and we believe he writes the book of Proverbs um, Proverbs 31 is said to be about his mom Batsheva he writes Song of Songs maybe Ecclesiastes maybe and he also has the same proclivities as his dad and has 700 wives and 300 concubines uh, possibly as a result of his wisdom because really getting that many wives were about diplomacy with neighboring nations right so his wives led him astray and had him build their own like pagan altars for their gods and God was not too much of a fan of that so there was that in any case from Solomon there was not a united Israel basically there was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah the northern kingdom consider, uh, was had these tribes. It had Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, Zebulun, and some of Levi because Levi was scattered throughout all of the tribes. And then the southern kingdom had Judah, where we get the name Jews from. And it was also where Jerusalem was. Benjamin and some of Levi, which was scattered throughout all the tribes. And so... All of them had some good kings and some bad kings. And generally, the northern kingdom had more bad kings than good kings. And generally, the southern kingdom had more good kings than bad kings. Now, the northern kingdom was captured by Assyria. 
and it was completely annihilated. They showed no mercy. Um, men were killed, women were raped. Everyone left totally assimilated. Uh, there was no trace of any of these tribes existing today. You will never meet anybody say, oh, I'm from the tribe of Naphtali. Oh, I'm from the tribe of Gad. Does not exist. You cannot trace these people. Um, the southern kingdom, Judah, was captured by Babylon in 587 BC. And they were treated a little better. So they did not get assimilated. And then Babylon gets conquered by Persia. And that's when the book of Esther takes place. Cyrus of Persia allows the Jews to, to return to Jerusalem in 538 BC and the temples rebuilt in 515 BC and the walls of Jerusalem are built in 444 BC and the religious reformation of Israel as described in Ezra is in 400 BC and that's what we it starts the 400 years of silence meaning no inspired scripture from this point until the birth of Yeshua or Jesus. So yeah, that's basically the Old Testament in a nutshell. And I mean in a nutshell. I skipped over a lot of stuff. No argument here. Lots of important stuff in there. Probably your favorite stories I left out. But again, we are doing a bird's eye view of all of this. So I want to thank you for joining me for the very first episode of Jesus Curious. Um, hopefully anyone who didn't know or was confused about the timeline of the Old Testament, this was really, really helpful for you. This is just kind of like a baseline of what we're working from for the main story for when we get to when Jesus was born into Judea in, you know, the, the first century. And so please tune in to the next episode. This is so, so important. I can't stress this enough where we discuss the not so silent 400 years and figure out where exactly the world landed before Yeshua hit the scene. If you have questions, please contact me at jesuscuriouspodcast at gmail.com. We are on social media as well. And then uh, at Jesus Curious on TikTok and Instagram. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, at your Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a five-star review and tune in next week. Thanks again. Once I met a man who was murdered, raised on a stake like the snake. But in Jerusalem, and you can see the truth in him. And it's shown like an innocent child, shown like an innocent child. Yet, grieved like a man with an adulterous wife, he stood in the midst of exile as the kind hand that extends to humanity from the depths of Hashem. The walking instructions of him. Deeper than the holes in the dark And higher than the stars and reefs Further than time tells a soul Yet closer than the breath that you breathe Redemption
instruction of great Israel was born on Sukkot, grew strong in the instruction, healing in the junctions of darkness. Inspected four days and found no blemish. Four days and found no blemish. One day wickedness hoped to save the rabbis. God has been willfully gave himself over as the ransom lamb of Passover to buy back Israel from the world's disorder. First fruit of the resurrection from the dead.